Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Last night, <clears throat> Guy spoke about motivation in practice. It's a very uh, key component, key issue in practice because, as was pointed out, it fuels all our, our effort when we are clear in our motivation. <clears throat> but how do we put that motivation, that intention, into action? Actually implement that motivation in our practice? Sometimes it seems that um, doing intensive practice is a kind of passive thing to do. You know, you tell your friends you're spending three weeks or, or six weeks on a retreat like this, and if they don't quite understand and they say, well, what do you do? Well, not much. <laughs> Watch my breath. I lift my foot, put it down, and I walk. You know, I eat slowly, you know, have a cup of tea in the evening, you know, listen to a talk. It doesn't seem like a very demanding schedule, but we all know how rigorous it is and that it's not passive at all, that actually doing this kind of work requires a tremendous commitment, a real wholehearted effort to be here, to be awake for our experience. Just to go against the grain of all the conditioning that we've developed of doing, of accomplishing, of being productive, to land in the present and simply learn to be is, requires tremendous um, heartful effort. I was thinking about uh, the, the people who are up here with me and, and the teachers in, in general in the community who I, I know pretty well over the years. And I don't know how much wisdom there is, maybe some wisdom. I think there's a fair amount of wisdom. I certainly respect uh, the the understandings that my friends have, but one common denominator that is so clear that I've seen for myself is that the wholehearted effort and the wholehearted um, passion with which these people practice. And it's, it's not just so that other people will see and look good when they're practicing and nobody sees. You know, I've, I've been on retreat and kind of peeked out of the corner of my eye. You know. They're really doing it. And I think that probably we could say that for everyone in this room, you know what it's like to really put your whole heart into practice from time to time, if not uh, regularly, consistently. How does that happen? That's something that always uh, mystified me. You know, why is it that some people feel this great calling, this yearning, this... Um, unequivocal direction to, um, to do this very strange exercise. How does that happen? In the teachings, there are uh, these qualities called paramis, or forces of purity, that accumulate over lifetimes that lead to um, good circumstances, good situation, the purity of our conduct leads to good circumstances, and it also leads to 
being able to hear the Dharma. It's extraordinary karma to be able to hear the Dharma. And then there are uh, additional paramis, forces of purity, that are uh, paramis of wisdom that enable one not only to hear the Dharma, but to practice it and realize the Dharma. And everybody here has been developing, whether you know it or not, if you think of it in, in terms of the karmic process, we've all been developing extraordinary forces of purity and purification in our journey that enables us to come and put in the effort that it takes to to do this practice together. And when you think about the karma in your in your lifetime, you know, what was it that brought you to practice? It doesn't necessarily flow like an obvious story. Well, I was touched by seeing, uh, reading in the Bible when I was young that that led me to my spiritual quest. Maybe that's true for for some people. For, For me, I was in a whole lot of suffering and I just was really confused. And the the thought, the the possibility when I, I saw that perhaps I could understand and not be driven by my neurotic thought patterns was, uh, was quite exciting and extraordinary. And uh, I was highly motivated because I was in such confusion. You know? Isn't that amazing how karma works? You know? Who would think that suffering is a gift? But as you've probably heard the expression, suffering is grace, or as Guy was talking about last night, that suffering can lead to a search that opens up to great faith in doing this work together. just want to have you reflect before I go on inside. What, what was it that brought you to practice? Do you remember that strange circumstance or moment where you knew that there was a direction you wanted to follow. Just go inside and remember that for a moment. And whatever the circumstance was, just realizing that there could have been many different responses to that situation, but somehow you were pulled towards the Dharma, just to understand and appreciate your paramis, your forces of purity that led you in this direction. Okay. The Buddha spoke of different qualities of character that are called the bases of success or the road that leads to success, different styles of personality that describe the source of our passion for practice. This is one of the many lists. It might be a list that you're not as familiar with. It's, it's actually um, one of the list of 37 factors of enlightenment. You know, there was a seven factors of enlightenment. That's a subset of 37, <clears throat> including things like the seven factors and the five, the five uh, faculties and the five powers and um, eightfold path, things like that. This is, this is one list of that 37. Four different <coughs> qualities of character that fuel our, um, our journey. And I, I want to share this particularly, uh, this list, as pertaining to the idea of having a passion for practice. And I would guess that you will find yourself in one or more of these four. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be sitting here listening to this talk. So 
we all have one or a combination of, of these qualities. And it's good to recognize our strength because when we can recognize it, we can build on it. And, and they fuel our effort the more we understand that we have that capacity. And each of these four touch on an aspect of faith. Faith is one of the five faculties that fuels effort, and effort develops mindfulness. Mindfulness develops concentration. Concentration develops wisdom. Each of these four touch on one flavor of faith. So I want to uh, go over them and see if you can recognize yourself in one or more of these. They are called the idipadas. It's a kind of nice name to know and impress your friends with. <clears throat> idipadas. Like siddhi, you know the word maybe siddhi, S-I-D-D-H-I, siddhi or power. This is uh, related to it. Idipada, basis of power or success. So the first of these qualities of character is um, called chanda idipada or zeal. Some people have a natural enthusiasm for things. You know, there's a, a strong sense of adventure, spirit of adventure, or a great inspiration that highly motivates and excites. And that's a wonderful quality to have that says, I'm going to do this. You know, that has a goal in sight and strongly is determined to accomplish that goal. It's a kind of unwavering sense of purpose. And the aspect of faith that it touches is that of inspiration. You know, perhaps you were brought to practice because you were so inspired by a particular person in your life or somebody that you, uh, that you heard about or read a book of. And that kind of brightness that comes with that inspiration is, is very energizing and alive. I remember when I started to practice, one component of, of uh, my energy was being really inspired by Joseph, who I first uh, encountered the teachings with. And I said, if he can do it, I can do it, you know. That guy knows something that I don't, and I want to know what he knows, because there was just something about, about the way he carried himself that really was inspiring to me. <clears throat> the Buddha had this quality. Actually, the Buddha is an example in, any, uh, in all four of these that uh, he expresses. The Buddha was first inspired as he talked about his, uh, his journey over many, many lifetimes when the previous Buddha was around. You know, there was a Buddha before this Buddha. You thought there was one? No, there's many, many Buddhas. And he was inspired by the previous one whose name was Dipankara Buddha. And it was said that when Dipankara Buddha walked, walked by, this, uh, this young man was so inspired by his presence that he made the vow that he too would become a Buddha. And as the story goes, just in the middle of uh, Dipankara Buddha moving through the crowd, he picked up this vow and this determination of this goal. And he stopped and he said, this man has just made a vow to become a Buddha and he will. Imagine that kind of confirmation. Imagine the Buddha coming to you and saying, you're going to be the next Buddha. You know, that'll give you a lot of zeal, right? <clears throat> Athletes have this quality of um, one-pointed sense of purpose. The, the, the most extraordinary example as a, a, a sports fan all my life, the most extraordinary example that I've ever seen is Michael Jordan who, besides his skills, which are 
you know, unparalleled. The thing that set, that set him apart from everybody else was his strength of mind, that he could will his body to do things that, you know, when it would be having a 102 fever, he'd will it to do something that, uh, that was, uh, you know, just... Uh, impossible for anyone else. And his strength of character could carry a whole team into believing themselves. Also, the Buddha was inspired when he saw the ascetic, you know, when he went out on his his journey that he saw those messengers, old age, sickness, and death. And then he was inspired by an ascetic monk when he asked his charioteer, what has this person done? And he said, he was told, this person has renounced the world and is seeking the highest happiness. And he said, that's for me. That's what I'm going to do. Do you remember who it was for you who inspired you? Even if this isn't your particularly strongest flavor, think of of who or what it was that you read that gave you the inspiration that said, I'm going for this. That's Chanda Idipada. A second quality, a second basis or road to success is called Virya Idipada. Virya means energy or effort. And it's different from the zeal in that it's the heart or the mind that says, I can do this and I will do it and nothing's going to get in my way. I will be able to endure whatever it takes to realize what what my highest aspiration is. There's an inner strength and a courage and a, a confidence that comes from, from this quality of determination. The Buddha, again, good example of this. Before his awakening, when he was still seeking the truth just as we seek it, the Buddha made this determination. If the end is attainable by human effort, I will not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. Pretty strong determination, huh? And that's what had to be there in order for him to sit under that tree and say, I'll be either enlightened or die. Imagine coming into the hall and say, let my blood and, and sinews dry up. <laughs> I'm going to be here, right? I'm not saying you have to go that far. <clears throat> Although, if you get inspired, see where it leads. Sometimes, uh, coming into Spirit Rock and in, into this meditation hall, <clears throat> uh, I reflect if there's one disadvantage of practicing in this environment is it's so good. It's so comfortable. I know your body hurts sometimes, but still the circumstance, this situation is so optimal maximizing your um, the silence and minimizing the distractions. Yeah, there might be somebody who's coughing or breathing loudly that you just know is in your way to becoming enlightened. You know. But it's not as heavy-duty initiation as going to Asia. 
that's for sure. When you, if, you've, if you haven't had the opportunity to go to Asia, it's not that the centers are anywhere near like this, but somehow making that whole journey, right, paying your dues, putting up with health problems and diet and noise and smells and all kinds of things, sickness, you know, it's like, okay, you have invested your whole heart into this. And that initiation itself brings about great confidence. Oh yes, I can do this. I'm not saying that you have to do that, but there is a value in seeing that you can. With our effort here, just mention a few words about effort. And I realize that I'm speaking to two different audiences. There are people who've just arrived and this is the second day of practice and it might be a bit much to hear about your sinews and blood drying up and and all. And I appreciate that on the second day of practice, it's all you can do to keep your, your body up at times. There is that settling in period, and there's no getting around it. You know, I tried for years to figure out how I could start a retreat on the fourth day and just never figured that one out. There's a natural settling in process in the first few days, no matter how long you've been doing it, have a lot of sleepiness and restlessness and achy body and busy mind. That's pretty much what the first few days are about. So... Um, giving yourself some space and patience and compassion for going through that process is very, is very important. <clears throat> but it's not to be so laid back that, well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful, and if I'm not, I'm not. You know? Still putting your, uh, your body here in the hall as best you can and, and doing, um, giving your heart to the schedule is, uh, is a, a way to move through that settling in period. There's another group of people, half, even more than half, um, who have been here practicing for over three weeks. And um, also, this isn't to crack the whip and say, you're not doing it good enough. And, uh, that's not what I'm, I'm wanting to communicate. But I... I do encourage us all to reflect on effort and realize that it's not about what your practice looks like on the outside. It's not, oh, am I concentrated now? Or am I quiet now? Is my mind busy or not? Or is it, uh, am I getting you know, crystal clear or not that much emotions, finally equanimous? What's going on is completely out of your control, whether you're sitting for two days or 22 days. But the real measure of effort is a sincerity of heart that you bring to your practice. That is, in this moment, what am I doing? Is it serving my awareness practice? Is it serving my mindfulness? Or uh, is it not? It's that, it's that simple. And wholehearted effort, as it turns out, is actually easier in the long run than half-hearted effort. Because although at the beginning it takes some cranking up, the effort simply to be here as best you can or to bring yourself back when you realize you've gone. That's, that's the effort. It's the effort to be mindful. And the effort to do that, a continual commitment to do that, starts to develop very strong mindfulness. And I don't know exactly why this happens, but it's a very mysterious process that the one ingredient that we can bring to our practice the one thing that we have some input on, some control over, 
is not mindfulness, is not concentration, is not calm. It's our sincerity of heart that wants to wake up. And simply that, again and again cultivated, that is creating those moments of mindfulness. It's planting seeds that sprout and ripen. So, your sincerity of heart might look very different from one day to the next, depending upon where your energy is, what your state of mind is, what you're going through. And you can throw out all the ideas you have about what good practice can look like because it's a fallacy. There's no way you can see, oh, this is good practice because somehow I got calm and quiet this, this sitting. You know? Next time, it could be very, very different. I've been on retreats where I was just kind of in a groove and really clear and really... Uh, mindful, and then I'd go into the hall and I'd sit down, time would pass, I don't know how much time, all of a sudden the bell would ring and I'd have no idea what planet I was on. But that would be a part, a natural cycle in the practice too. And so there's no controlling what it looks like, but coming back again and again and seeing what can I do to meet this moment with clarity and kindness. I would encourage you, if you've been practicing for weeks, to take a look and see if you're kind of coasting, if you're just kind of finding a nice, comfortable rhythm that works for you, or Is there a way that you can uh, play your edge, as sometimes the the phrase is, to to explore new new territory? Not to get so comfortable that the the sharpness and the the wholehearted commitment wanes. When you go to sleep, go to sleep because you're really tired not because it seems like the right time to go to sleep. Or if you wake up, and heaven forbid it's before the wake-up bell, see what it's like to come into the hall. Just see. And this is a little coming attraction for people who've just come into the retreat last few days. Maybe in a few days your energy will pick up. Just explore your limits like that. If at the end of the sitting you find that you're quite settled in and it's not forced or strained, see what it's like to keep on sitting until there's a reason to get up. If you have a a sense that walking for an extra period would be useful, just explore. Make it like an adventure. And be willing to be here for whatever comes up, this virya idipada, this capacity to be here for anything in your body, okay? If there's a, a strong sensation, I'm not saying to become a, a macho meditator and you know see how tough you can be, but just to explore and see if you can meet it before that layer of fear comes on or if the layer of fear is there, to just explore that fear so it doesn't get in the way and frighten us from opening up to what's going on. There's difficult emotions. There's lots of different ways to work with with any particular situation in practice. But I would suggest before you take some space, before you put the metta uh, uh, meet it with metta or before you uh, take a break and get some space, which can be a very, very skillful thing to do. Before you do that, see if you can just hang out with it a little bit and explore what's going on. Because when you do that, besides understanding with more clarity what is actually here, it also increases your confidence, your courage, 
and that, that power to meet any situation. So you're planting the seeds for more confidence in the future. And that's the aspect of faith that this virya idipada touches. There's the faith that comes from confidence. Yes, I can meet this moment. I can be here for it. I won't crumble. So there's um, zeal and um, energy, effort. Third of these um, qualities of character is called citta, C-I-T-T-A. You know the, the word that is, refers to heart and mind, citta idipada. And what it is, is um, the inspiration that comes when you have fallen in love with the Dharma. And this kind of, this aspect of faith that, the, that this Idipada touches on is faith that comes from your own taste, your own experience of the truth. And that's one that nobody can take away from you once you've experienced it for yourself. Can you remember? Can you remember a moment either on this retreat or on a past retreat where you really saw, you really understood something? Just, again, just go inside if you would. Remember for a moment one of your deepest realizations or your deepest, where you absolutely knew. And remember how it felt and how much deeper and more exciting the practice became. When you touch that place of purity, of absolute authenticity, it's so compelling that almost anything, anything pales by comparison. And it's a, it's a wonderful source of inspiration. The Buddha very much exemplified also this, this quality in that once he saw the possibility, he would never be satisfied until he came to the end of his, his quest. There was no stopping until he realized full awakening. And you perhaps know the stories he would learn from the meditation masters in his, in his time and learn everything that they could teach him and had some pretty far-out meditation states and experiences. And then he said, teach me more. And they said, I, I don't have any more to teach you. Please come here and we can teach together. And he said, uh, no, thank you. I've got more work to do. You know, because he was just drawn more and more. He knew there was more somewhere inside of him. And he wouldn't be satisfied with what he had to that point understood. This is Kabir. My mind and body are in depression because you are not with me. How much I love you and want you in my house. When I hear people describe me as your bride, I look sideways ashamed because I know that far inside us we have never met. Then what is this love of mine? I don't really care about food. I don't really care about sleep. I am restless indoors and outdoors. 
The bride wants her lover as much as a thirsty man wants water. And how will I find someone who will take a message to the guest from me? How restless Kabir is all the time. How much he wants to see the guest. Kabir says this, when the guest is being searched for, it is the intensity of the longing for the guest that does all the work. Look at me and you will see a slave of that intensity. Falling in love with the Dharma. It's a great love affair. I think I was saying in the in a group yesterday, I remember uh, Trungpa Rinpoche saying uh, that meditation practice is having a, a love-hate relationship with your zafu. You know? uh, but mostly, the love wins out. If you keep on coming, it's quite an intense affair, isn't it? So this is the third citta itipada. And then the fourth, which is called Vamamsa Idipada. And what that means is an investigation of the truth, where you, you see what the actual situation, predicament is that we're in. And the more you see it, the more you realize this sense of urgency that there's no time to waste. And that is the faith that's born out of the understanding of this predicament and also the possibility of freedom. The Buddha said we're like children playing in the attic with toys not realizing that the whole house is on fire. Once we realize and see there's a way to get out, we're highly motivated. Again, his um, seeing of those messengers of old age and sickness and death, that woke him up, said, wow, I can't stay in this palace. That's not going to lead anywhere. That's not going to really lead to happiness. I've got something to do. In, uh, in both Theravadan practice and particularly in, uh, in Tibetan practice, there are called the four reminders or mind changers that really um, express and describe this investigation that as you see where we are, you have a great sense of urgency and motivation. And the four mind changers are understanding, one, the preciousness of this human birth that we have. It's really extraordinary, isn't it? There are different realms, you know, lots of different realms, hell realms and hungry ghost realms, if you believe them, and animal realms, and... Uh, human realm and uh, jealous God realm. It's sometimes talked about in the God realm. Out of all the realms, the human realm is the optimal one to awaken, it's said, because there's just the right combination of pleasure and pain. So you don't get lost in either side. If you're in the Brahma realm, you can get kind of uh, just so enjoying of the situation that you you don't have the urge to, uh, to be free. And of course, the hell realm, it's a little bit difficult also to see clearly. But here we are in the human realm. And in this earth realm, out of all the animals, out of all the creatures in this realm, how extraordinary it is to be born human. I was reading in Um, The Grab Bag, one of my favorite columns, the Sunday Chronicle, a few months ago, that if you took all the people in the United States 
and put them on one side of a scale and all the earthworms in the United States and put them on another side of the scale that the earthworms would be 55 times heavier than all the people. Isn't that mind-blowing? That's just earthworms. Think of how many earthworms it makes it would take to to weigh you. It's pretty amazing being born a human. And then it's even more amazing when you think about it out of the 5.5 billion people to have good circumstances so that you're not living in fear or danger as a large portion of this planet is. And those that, that, ha- that aren't living in fear or danger or that, that don't know if they're going to have food on the table that night or uh, are living in, in great poverty and just working so hard to, to stay alive, those that have the good circumstances think of how extraordinary it is to not be seduced by those circumstances and think and see that there's something more, a greater kind of happiness than having it cushy. That's pretty amazing when you think of it that way. And here we are practicing together inclined to the Dharma and having a chance to practice, it's amazing. That is a very precious circumstance. And when I think about it, there's this kind of inspiration and um, responsibility to make the most of, of the opportunity. So that's one reminder, the preciousness of this human birth and a good birth opportunity. Second is understanding deeply impermanence and death. Now, it's scary for many people to think about death. But reflecting on that puts you in touch with the preciousness, again, of the birth, and also everything that gets in the way of your awakening. Because when you are confronted with your fears, those are the places that you hold, that you get caught. And seeing impermanence, seeing that you have a very limited time, what, maybe 70 if you're lucky, or 80 years, that's not very long. Maybe 90, big deal, that's like a blip. What are you going to do with that time. Get another ice cream cone? I like ice cream, you know, so I'm not putting that down, but there must be something else to to do with your time when you realize how how short it is. The other yesterday we were uh, doing the uh, the group interview and just talking about fear. Uh, it was quite interesting. We were uh, we went around and said, and people said, what their worst fear of starting a retreat like this would be. You know, what would be your retreat from hell, right? And one person said that it would be really boring, right? And another person said that they wouldn't learn anything, or another person said. Uh, you know, various, various things. It would be very intense and, and overwhelming. You know? And then as we, as we went around, then we looked at what it would be like if you got the thing that you fear the most. And each person said, well, if I, if I had that, you know, and I lived through it, you know, which they all thought they would, it would actually be incredibly freeing. Because once you have your worst fear, what else is there? You, know, you don't have to worry about much else. So it's, it's kind of ironic that the things that scare us 
are the doorways to, uh, to opening and to ease and awakening. So anyway, reflecting on this impermanence and on death, it's like Castaneda says, you know, carrying death as, as an advisor over your, your shoulder, seeing, let's make use of this time. A third of these mind changers in this investigation, Edipada, is understanding to some extent karma, that there is cause and effect, and that what you're doing right now is sowing the seeds for your life in the future. So you've got a choice in every moment that you respond to the present circumstance with attachment, aversion, or confusion, ignorance, you are sowing the seeds for suffering. In every moment that you respond with non-attachment, that is a kind of openness of, of heart, non-aversion or friendliness, loving-kindness, and non-confusion or clear seeing, you are sowing the seeds of more happiness. So it's really up to you. It's a kind of understanding the the value of delayed gratification. Because in the long run, if you can put off the immediate hit, there is a much greater happiness as you meet the moment with that kindness and non-grasping, non-confusion. And the way karma works, as you meet the moment, there is the instant karma right now of doing something in a wholesome way. It feels good. There is the resultant karma of good circumstances coming back. And there's also the karma of the likelihood of that response in the future. So every single moment, you've got a choice making more suffering for yourself and more happiness. That's a good motivation. And then the last of these mind changers is called the shortcomings of samsara. Understanding the shortcomings of samsara. You know, samsara is this wheel of, of the world that we are on, of rounds of rebirth over and over in which the, uh, the essential activities are seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. Now, that's pretty much what most of us are, uh, have as the prime task in our life, most of the people on the planet anyway, probably us from time to time too. And there's this false sense of security that this will make me happy, of what brings happiness for me. It's not that way. This is a very limited sense of happiness, because no matter how good you get, it's not going to last. And then you are bound to meet the next moment with grasping or pushing, and it's endless. I'm reading... um, this new book by the Dalai, uh, Dalai Lama. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, The Art of Happiness. He says, uh, the difference between happiness and pleasure. He says, uh, sometimes people confuse happiness with pleasure. Uh, from my point of view, the highest happiness is when one reaches the stage of liberation at which there is no more suffering That's genuine, lasting happiness. True happiness relates more to the mind and heart. Happiness that depends mainly on physical pleasure is unstable. One day it's there, the next day it may not be. So understanding the the shortcomings of samsara, that what we've been told will bring us happiness by all the media and the whole culture, is not really so. So this is 
the, the, the four mind changers which are underneath this, we're in this subset of the investigation of our predicament, another source of motivation or passion in practice. These are the idipadas, okay? the one of great inspiration, zeal, one of being able to be here for any circumstance, effort, energy, the moving towards the Dharma because you've fallen in love with it, and the understanding of the urgency of the situation. Whatever one you find is high for you, is the highest on the scale, then honor it and appreciate it. And also know that you probably are touched by the other three as well. And as you honor and develop that natural quality, those qualities, then you can really give yourself to the passion that you feel for practice. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to put your whole heart into. I can't think of anything better to put your whole heart into than to meet this moment with wakefulness so that you can truly wake up. And one of the things that for me is an inspiring reminder as I practice is that every single moment Every single moment of mindfulness counts. There's not one moment of mindfulness that's wasted. Because every single moment I'm deconditioning the habits of attachment and aversion and confusion. And every single moment I'm cultivating kindness and generosity and clarity. So every moment counts. Put your heart into it. And also keep it light. It's not that you've got to do this so intensely that you get all wound up in knots. The the balance of that passion is an ease and a spaciousness. And so you just need to monitor what brings about, what really can I give my heart to and keep it open and at ease and enjoying this practice no matter what the situation is. So, let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.